This is different. <laughs> Normally, I have a guitar in front of me, so I can hide behind it, which feels much better. Also, I always see Rich do this. Like, this is how you do it, huh? This is how you hold it, against your chest. Now I'm going to just hold it here. Tim, you're back. Welcome back. When did you come back? Uh, yesterday. And you're already here. You don't have a jet lag? Respect, respect, respect. Well, anyway, for those who don't know me, uh, first of all, first of all, before I'm going to say who I am, uh, I'm, I'm not a preacher. I'm actually a teacher, so I'm just going to do this as, as if you guys are my students. So every now and then I'm going to ask you a question, and I expect an answer then. And I will give you a bad grade if you don't answer correctly. Is that a deal? That's not loud enough, guy. Is that a deal? That's much better. <laughs> so, anyway, my name is Michel Vanessen, if you don't know me yet. I, uh, I uh, am the worship leader here at Harvest. And as I said before, I normally hold a guitar. And uh, I like to sing songs. I'm very passionate about songs. As a matter of fact, I think liturgy is such an integral part of my life, our family's life, my wife and my son's life, that uh, Rich and I have been talking about that for quite a while now, and we decided, hey, we need to have a moment that we can talk about this in church. So let me give a little bit of background here. Uh, so previously, Rich explained, this is a couple of months ago, how we do our worship. If you remember, we have this one, two, three, four, five worship set up where number one, so the first songs are songs of excitement. doesn't mean it has to be upbeat and something like that. It has to be welcoming. So it is, uh, it is rooted in the idea that we want to go to Jerusalem from our whatever village in Israel, and we are ready to sacrifice some animals, and we are excited about this. Maybe this is a pilgrim's feast. Maybe we're going for whatever festival, but we're really excited to do this, and we are bringing a couple of our small little whatever, goats, lamb. It's kind of sad if I think about it, you know? Anyway, we're very excited. So that represents number one. And just imagine all the way as we progress towards the temple, number five is entering the Holy of Holies. And Rich explained that because of Christ being the high priest, he gave the ultimate sacrifice, and now we can enter the Holy of Holies. This is great. It's amazing. So if you don't remember what I'm talking about or have no clue what I'm talking about, I really would like to encourage you to go back online and listen to that sermon because that's not what I'm going to talk about today. <laughs> today we're going to talk about uh, liturgy, liturgy. So Rich and I met two summers ago. I remember very well. As a matter of fact, it was kind of awkward. There was this girl called Michael Conger. She worked for this organization called Nova HDI, and uh, that's Northern Virginia Human Trafficking Initiative. And she sent me an email and said, oh, there's this guy called Rich Scheip, and uh, he wants to meet people because he's starting a new church. Please hang out with him. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. Give him my email. And uh, uh, that never happened. We never talked. We never met up with each other. So, uh, but then months, months later, I talked with, uh, I, I'm also a director of a small school here in Sterling. Uh, I talked to one of my board members and said, hey, I need a spiritual leader in this area that could function as a board of directors leader, a board of directors uh, spiritual leader for our school. And she said, oh, I know this guy called Rich Scheip. I'm like, 
Shite, that sounds so familiar. <laughs> Lo and behold, I, I go through my, you know how Google saves everything? You type in rich, I, and right there, I had an email from him or from Michael Conger, and uh, turns out that I, had to, I was supposed to meet him like a year or maybe before. Anyway, we talked together, and my hidden agenda was to secretly convince him to join the board of directors. But uh, Rich is not rich if he did not have a secret agenda either, right? <laughs> He's like, okay, let's make a deal, Michel. No, no, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. He actually told me about Harvest. <laughs> he, said, he talked about Harvest, and he said, yeah, Harvest Bible Church, blah, blah, blah. And I told him, yeah, you know, Rich, Bible Church, I'm not really a Bible Church person. Bible Church people don't understand liturgy. They, uh, they, uh, they just do a spiritual Yahtzee with the songs, right? Don't you ever feel like that every now and then? It's, like, it's beautiful, like great, talented worship leader. I heard that at Cornerstone there's a guy that plays the guitar that looks just like me, so he's probably very excellent at what he's doing. But so this spiritual Yahtzee kind of like bothered me, and we already were going to a home church. We, like, there's a couple of people that went to that home church, like Mark in the back there, and Josh right here, they all went to this small little home church that we had. And every now and then, we church hopped. I really felt at home at an Anglican church because they understand liturgy like nobody's, else, nobody's business. Anyway, I told Rich that I feel that the evangelical church, I understand where they're coming from, right? I feel like the evangelical church has thrown away liturgy. Well, how do you say that? They've thrown away the baby with the water, which is a very weird thing to say, America. Who came up with that? So I see this happening. You have this bathtub, and you have a baby, and you pour it out. Oh, the baby fell out as well. What just happened there? And then you made it into a saying or so. I don't understand. I don't understand. There's so many weird things, like shooting fish in a barrel. Fish in a barrel, guys. Who grabs fish, puts them in the barrel, and then starts shooting at it? That is dangerous. Anyway... Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm getting excited about this. Rich, Rich and I talked about it, and he said, you know, Harvest actually does things a little bit different. And we spoke about this liturgy, this one, two, three, four, five liturgy. And it's like, that sounds like kind of like modern liturgy. It's like they didn't completely throw, throw away old liturgy, but they also kept some of the uh, newer elements in the church, right? It's 2019, people li- listen to different music. Uh, it's not the Beach Boys anymore. Um, so if you're a fan of the Beach Boys, we're not, we're not going to do that on, on stage. I'm sorry. So anyway, um, I strongly believe that liturgy has been mistakenly identified as legalism. And I felt some sort of camaraderie with Rich here, that with this harvest model of worship, that it's true, yeah, uh, that there is an answer to bring liturgy into today. So how does that work? Let me give a good example. Uh, this morning, I promised my neighbor to talk about coffee, so I have to do that, right, Michaela? So speaking of coffee, this is water. This is a water bottle. I know it looks like a Starbucks cup, but I need to take a sip of my water that's in a water bottle. So... As most of you know, I drink crap coffee. I'm sorry, am I supposed to say? Am I allowed to say crap? Is it good? It's good, good. Anyway, um, 
<laughs> I'm sorry, I'm Dutch. It's, it's a thing. Uh, I drink very bad coffee, right? If you give me Folgers, uh, I would drink it. And then if you give me Maxwell House coffee, I'll drink it as well. I don't care. One day, particularly in my life, I thought I was a coffee expert. I thought I could be the best coffee fashionista in the world. I, I had my pour over. I had my percolator. I had my electric percolator. I had my vacuum, whatever. All those coffee-making uh, methods that made me feel like I was very good at making coffee. And then I was introduced to the mad priests. I'm not talking about an actual priest that was mad. There's this guy in Chattanooga who's called the mad priest, and he makes really good coffee. And we were getting together, and we were roasting coffee, and he explained me about tartness and whatever good stuff. And I had such a good time. Every time I went over, we roasted our own coffee, we ground it, we made it in all kinds of ways, and it was great. It was great. Surely, I used to be a coffee expert. Now, what? Am I some sort of master? I used to be a journeyman master, right? That's how it goes. So um, I really, really thought I was good at coffee. On my way back here to uh, Loudoun County, I met up with another guy who was also a very coffee expert. But, but the difference was he was actually a coffee expert, and I was just in it for the ride. And I realized it like so. We were having a drink together, and... First of all, I brought my own beans. He said, no, no, you can't use those beans. They're more than two days old. You can't use them anymore. Like, oh, sorry, sorry. And we ground a batch of his beans, and he had this contraption with all these tubes. I don't know. It was very impressive. And then I took a sip, and then he almost yelled at me because I had to slurp it. This guy is a good... I, I make him sound like he's some sort of evil man. He's actually a good guy. But... <laughs> He made me slurp the thing, and then he said, what, what do you think of this coffee? And I said, well, it's, it's uh, nice and bitter. He's like, no, I disagree. It's not bitter. <laughs> I, what? Anyway, I realized that what I was missing in the coffee drinking experience, that it was the relationship that I had with the mad priest and my buddy Jeremiah in Chattanooga. And right now, uh, whenever I drink coffee, I know that when I see Brian, and I say, hey, I brewed a pot of coffee. He will come over and sit at my table and we'll have fellowship. And that's what it's all about, right? I'm not saying that drinking good coffee is bad now. I still, still, this morning, my neighbors brewed me actual coffee and it was really good. Thanks. Thanks for that. So the relationship was built over all those hours of coffee drinking and roasting. And that's what really got me in there. So you may think, what, has this, what does this example have to do with anything uh, in, in liturgy? So let me, let me try to make a point here and try to bring this relationship aspect and its liturgy together. So let's first speak about the meaning of the word liturgy. The meaning of the word liturgy. So uh, the next slide, one, one, one back, is uh, a passage from the Septuagint, and uh, the Septuagint is an interesting little book. Uh, it was the first translation of the Old Testament that Jesus used in his time. So this was before Christ. And uh, this is the first time, Exodus 37, 27, I think, 37, 38, somewhere. That's the first time that they used the word liturgy. And it is meant public service. So this is a story about the priests doing their business at the tabernacle. They do some incense offer, 
and they do some, uh, what, the washing of their hands, and they throw a bull on the fire, and then smash it with blood. It's very bloody. It's very gory. Anyway, and they call it liturgy, public service. So if you go to the root word, which is the next, uh, which is the next uh, slide, liturgeo, which means liturgy. And it comes from two, uh, two words that you may know. So the first one is laos, and the second one is ergon. Laos is where we get the word lady from, and it means people. It just means people. And ergon comes from the word work or energy. But we like to translate it as, uh, as work. Am I right? We got another Greek specialist here. It's kind of nice. Just like coffee specialist there. It's good stuff. All these specialists here. Anyway, so liturgy literally means the work of the people. And whenever we used it in ancient times, we used it to describe what, uh, what public service was. So before the Bible, before religious service, there was already liturgy. There were rich and wealthy people that would say, hey, I'm going to donate to the choir of the city-state of Athens because I'm really wealthy and I like it. Or I'm going to provide warships for the city-states of Athens as a public service. That was called liturgy. Okay, so now we know what the meaning behind the word liturgy is. Let's see, uh, let's see what we can do with it. So, I'm going to peek at my notes. That's what pastors do, right? Peek at their notes. If we think about liturgy, I know I've said liturgy a lot of time. I'm going to say it a lot more times. But if we think of liturgy, we usually think of a specific structure, right? And we go to a church where they have a cross procession. Or maybe we sing some hymns and we do the same hymn in every church all over the planet. But in reality, I think liturgy can be something more closer to home, right? We can see liturgy, for example, in creation. Um, if you, uh, for example, the, the sun rises every day and goes under every day. And you go to bed every day, you wake up every day. At some point, you are hungry, and that happens every day. Never at any given moment when that happens do you say, well, I'm afraid that I'm becoming a little bit legalistic here. I'm not going to eat today. Well, Brian did that for 40 days, but that's a different matter. <laughs> but besides Brian, everybody else will eat when they're hungry. Because that's a good thing to do, right? When you wake up, you're not saying, well, I'm afraid that I'm becoming a little bit legalistic. I'm not going to wake up right now. So there's some sort of liturgy that we have in creation already, which is great, which is great. Um, so if we already have liturgy in our creation... Let's see how it connects to the religious uh, liturgy. I say the word religious, I don't mean anything negative with it. I know it has negative connotations in America, but I just mean religion or Christianity in general. We go to church every week, right? We pray before a meal, maybe. And when you bring your child to bed, you pray as well, maybe. So there's all these kind of ways that you have liturgy at home in a spiritual matter, or maybe just creation shows a liturgy as well. And never do we think it's legalistic. But for some reason, when we apply liturgy in a church service, 
or when we apply liturgy at a grander scale at our home, we somehow think it's uh, legalistic. We think, no, no, this is taking away the magic of religion, uh, of Jesus. We need to do things spontaneously. Only then can we actually reach God. And I want to argue against this. And how do I want to argue against this? I think there's three nuances or three categories of liturgy that I have identified. Well, I have not identified them. I, I studied this, and that's where I identified them. But anyway, so there's the work of the people, there is the work of Christ, and there's the work of God. So let's talk about the work of people first. I already touched a little bit about it, um, but uh, let's look at the... Let me take a step back here. When I say the work of the people, I mean the literal translation of the word liturgy, right? It means the work of people or public service. But you can only have it if you're completely into it. You can only have... Uh, community with each other when you're absolutely 100% in it. We can only have community here in church when we fully commit ourselves and actually have relationship. Otherwise, you can just show up and disappear. Nobody will know that you're here. But you actually have to know people. You actually need to relate to other people. So let's have a Look at Acts 2. This is a super famous verse, but let's try to dissect it a little, a little bit different. This is, is, this is Acts 2, verse 42 and 47. If you have a Bible, uh, go look it up. If not, I don't have it on the screen because I'm a teacher and I really want you to grab your Bible and look it up. So I'll give you, I'll give you two seconds there. Open your logos up, uh, Herman. You don't have a Bible? You need a Bible? We have Bibles for you, man. Oh, you share? Okay. Good, good, good. So Acts 2, 42 to 47. It says, And they, they meaning the people who just listened to Peter's awesome speech, right? We all know that. I have high expectations of you guys. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So that's a lot of dedication here, right? It says they devoted themselves. And when I hear the word devoted, I think that's, that's pretty hardcore. We're going for this. We're going to be all in here. Not just half, or let's follow Jesus 10%. Or what Peter says is awesome, but I'm just going to stay at home and only break bread when there's a party at Andreas's house. I don't know what kind of Greek names are there. Sorry, Andrea. You were like, oh, my name. Different one. E-A-S, not I-A. 
almost the same, simple misunderstanding. So they dedicated, they devoted themselves to the teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then it says, all who believed have and had, had all things in common. Like, this blows my mind. Like, what do you mean, all things in common? So, this is a group of people that just all gave their life to Jesus. They're still Jews because this was just like a, a different version of Judaism, right? There were no Christians yet. This is Acts 2. So, they shared everything together. They sold all they had, brought it together, put it at the apostles' feet, and shared everything together. Not just their money, but I'm, I'm imagining or would even argue for that they also shared their deepest, darkest sins and secrets. They shared their burdens. They were helping each other when they needed to move or whatever. They shared everything with each other. I think that's a very big essence right here when we think about the work of the people. Let's take one step back, and then I go back to the sharing everything. So I think the next slide is a picture of the tabernacle. Is that, is that correct? Uh-oh. He's going to show us Old Testament stuff. We knew that we never should let this Jew speak. I know. I know. <laughs> so I'm going to make it easy for you guys. The tabernacle consists of three sections. It's much more, but for today's class, because I'm not a preacher, remember, for this class, it's just three segments. It's the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. So let's park holy of holies for a second. I'm going to make it even easier for you guys, and we're only going to focus on the outer courtyard and the holy place. And what happened in the outer courtyard and the holy place, I, I referred to it a little bit earlier already, uh, burnt offerings were brought at the, at the altar of burnt offering all the way to the right at the east side. And then before you get to the veil, it says altar of incense. That's where you had coals that were burning at the, altar of the, at the, at the brazen altar. You used those coals where all the sheep and bulls just were slaughtered. You used those coals on the incense altar, and then you sacrifice incense for, for the Lord. And there's a lot of stuff going on there, right? People need to clean it up. Some people need to throw some blood against the brazen altar. Some people need to, like, polish the menorah or so. All those people are Levites. They're all priests. So what were they doing? Well, I referred to it earlier. They were doing public works. They were doing liturgy. And Peter claims that we are a nation of priests. We are, I would say, royal priests, right? So we are of a different line right now than the Levites. But if we are priests and the temple does not exist anymore, let's see what happened to the temple. We are the temple. Our bodies are a temple, right? And the church, not this building, all the people of God, are together a temple for God, and God is dwelling in us. So this whole thing is a tabernacle, and tabernacle just means dwelling place. It's just a funky word, and the Bible likes to use funky words. So, if you look back at the Acts 2 chapter, and you think about it, 
they were all taking care of the temple. Let me repeat that. Let's look back at Acts chapter 2. And if we are priests and our bodies are temples, then all the people in Acts chapter 2 were taking care of the temple. So what does that mean if you take care of the temple? It means that you're performing liturgy, public works. And that just blows my mind. That just blows my mind. So they are doing liturgy, public works, to the temple. They're maintaining the temple just like they were doing there. That was just a foreshadowing of what we do right now. And what we do right now is just a foreshadowing of what is to come. So many layers. Definitely don't have three hours to talk about that. But let's move on. Let's move on. There's a lot to talk about. Let's move on. Work of Christ. So the work of Christ, the principal liturgists, and I need you to bear with me for a second because I'm going to read a whole chapter of Hebrews, and I'm going to let it speak for itself. Hebrews chapter 9. You guys ready? You all find it? Yes? If you found it, raise your Bible in the air. Yes. (laughs) Okay. I'm reading the ESV translation. Uh, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which there was a lampstand and a table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain there was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim, cherubim, this is what you say in English, I guess, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot, uh, we cannot now speak in details. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But in the second, only the high priest goes And he but once a year, and not without taking the blood which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this Holy Spirit in the by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. We just talked about this, right? Liturgy is the work of man. Let's read on and read liturgy as the work of Christ. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not, in this, uh, not of this creation, he entered once, all, once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled, pers- defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sancti- sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it, is not, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not of his own. For then he would have to have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You guys made it. But amen, right? That is pretty cool. So I would argue that the second nuance that was saying Christ is Christ as the chief liturgist. So liturgy means the work of men. See it as if Christ has done the work of men for us because we cannot do that, right? So we did all the housekeeping in the temple, but it was just a foreshadowing of right now. And Christ here has done that work for us because he entered the Holy of Holies for forever, once and for all. And he took that task on him. So he is the chief liturgist right there. He's also taking care of the temple, but he's doing it on our behalf. The Gospels even witness this phenomenon by tearing the curtain in half. Just imagine how crazy this is. For so many hundreds of years, the Jews pray in a tabernacle, and nobody dares to enter what is behind the veil. And all of a sudden, the veil just tears open. It's gone. Everybody can see it. And then some other crazy things happen that sounds like The Walking Dead. But yes, <laughs> but yes. Let's look at the third nuance, the work of God. First nuance is the work of men or the work of people doing public service, right? The second nuance, the work of men done 
with Christ. Christ has done it through us. And the third one is the biggest one. So just like the second one makes the first one possible, the third one makes the second one possible. I know we're not in an algebra class. I know this is a lot to comprehend. How do we do this? So let me break it down. Christ was needed so we can be liturgists in our own way. God is needed so Christ could be a liturgist in his own way. And I'm threading on thin ice right now. I know, because it may sound as if I'm saying there's something bigger than Christ's ultimate sacrifice. So let me go ahead and make the ice even thinner and say, Jesus, his ultimate sacrifice was not for us. He did not die for us. He died for us so we can glorify God. And that's a big difference here. That's a big difference here. So let me repeat that one more time. Jesus did not die for our sins. Jesus died for our sins so we can be clean. And because we are clean, now we can fully glorify God. Liturgy. (laughs) God's narrative, the story. He had made every, he's made everything possible from beginning to end. And don't for a second think that I don't have questions about why God did the things the way he did. I always think, well, God, if you just did this and that, I, I know better, God, you know. We all think that. But God, in his infinite wisdom, has set up this earth, has led the Jews out of the wilderness, has set a tabernacle so that later he can have Jesus die as a fulfillment of this tabernacle, so that later we can sit here talking about liturgy. It is amazing in my eyes. That is, boom. So, no, I cannot do it better, God. I know, I know. So God's liturgy is creation. We can see it in everything. We sing it every now and then when we sing, so will I. Right? If the rocks cry out in silence, so will I. And that's exactly it. Everything in creation is worshiping God. The only, the only ones that seem to have a trouble with worshiping God and knowing their place in creation is us, people. And even that didn't bother God. He sent his son to die on a cross so we can be clean and worshiping again. I want to I end up with two things. Good intentions, bad form, and bad form, uh, and good form, bad intentions. So, good intentions, bad form, and good form, bad intentions. There's a very easy exp- uh, uh, example of good intentions and bad form. It's King David. I mean, there's thousands of examples where he had good intentions. Well, I really had good intentions when I was looking at Bathsheba. <laughs> right? And think about the time that he brought the ark back to Jerusalem. We usually interpret that story as like, that was awesome. But he made so much mistakes there. It cost a person his life. His wife never bore children anymore. Because of his decisions that day. I'm not going to go into it. That would be reading another chapter. (laughs) But... uh, but if you, if you want to go over it and compare it to Numbers and Leviticus, 
and Exodus and see who are responsible for carrying the ark. So David carries the ark on oxen, but you're supposed to let let specific tribe of priests carry the, the ark on poles of cedar, on your shoulder. That's why there's rings there. He made rings so you can put them on your shoulder. David puts them on a cart, and then it falls, and then this guy is, like, touching it, and he dies. Why did he die? Well, God said so. If you touch it, you die. It literally says, if you touch it, you die. David could have prevented that. So he puts the ark somewhere else. He's like, you know, I'm not going to bring it to Jerusalem. And then... This guy over Elom, his household gets blessed. And then a couple of months later, David hears it. And he's like, I want that. So he goes and gets the ark again. That sounds a little bit like jealousy to me. Or envy or whatever the difference is between that. Okay. And then he put on an ephod and sacrificed the bull. Wait a second. Who are supposed to sacrifice bulls? And where are you supposed to sacrifice a bull? In the tabernacle, we just talked about that. And then you can smash the blood against the brazen altar. I know you're all waiting for that little detail again. (laughs) But he just sacrificed a a bull and then wears an ephod so everybody can see his private parts and dance around. Like, "Ah, just imagine. Now, ephod could mean a priestly garment, but later on in the Bible there's also mentions of something else as an ephod. But one thing they all have in common an ephod for priests is where you put the whole priestly things on, you know, the stones or whatever not. It's pretty transparent. And the other garment, ephod, is also very transparent. So the king of Israel brought the ark into Jerusalem, pretended to be a Levite while he was a Judean, sacrificed the bull, and danced around half naked. And then his wife calls him out which I hope my wife does too when I do that. I know you can never unsee this anymore. <laughs> so, and then he says, what you want, woman? And she never bears kids anymore. So I think that's a very, very great example of good intentions. He may have had good intentions, but the form was bad. He could have just looked it up. He should have just asked his buddy Nathan, hey, Nathan, You got some advice for me? Which Nathan had a couple of times, right? All right. Now, let's talk about the other one. Good form and bad attentions. There's a lot of examples like that in the Bible as well. But let me just grab the most famous verse, which is Isaiah 29, 14. Isaiah 29, 14 says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. I encourage you to go through these Isaiah chapters and see that God is really frustrated about this. He does not like it when people just say, Oh, glory, glory, God. We love you. Hooray. Amen. So you can have very good form, even form taught by men, but have bad intentions. So if both of those are wrong, right? Well, we can agree that both of them, like, okay, God redeems everything. But if, if anything, is, isn't there something we can do? I think there is something we can do. I don't think it's a good idea to just go to church because you think you have to go to church. 
And I don't think it's a good idea to go pray because you think you should pray. What I think everybody should do, and I encourage you to do this starting like today, is question yourself why you do things. So next week, we're going to, or today even, the, the, the band is going to come up. Great, by the way. I'm just, I, just, I just saw that I'm not needed anymore, so I'm going <laughs> to relax. This is awesome. Anyway, but when they are going to sing, I want, you, I want to encourage you to not only read the words and listen to the words, but think, hey, these songs, pardon, this song is chosen as a communion song. So picture yourself as you walk towards the cup to to communion. Picture yourself actually drinking Jesus' blood. I'm not talking about transfiguration or whatever, right? I'm, I'm talking about picture yourself how Jesus has shed his blood for you. Picture yourself how Jesus broke his bones, his body for you, I mean. And every time, I want to encourage you to do that. Whenever you pray, when you go home tonight and you have dinner and you say, Lord, please press this meal, amen, I want to encourage you to not pray that same prayer. Or if you're going to pray that same prayer, let somebody else pray it. And if somebody else prayed or you prayed whatever the prayer is, think to yourself, what am I saying right now? Am I really seeking God's face? God has Give me these privileges that I can eat every day in this Western society. Can we really be thankful for that? So, and if you go to church next week, I would almost encourage you. I know Rich is after this, never going to let me talk again. If you don't want to come, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should ask yourself, why am I going? Pray through that question, text Rich and say, hey, can we have a coffee or so? I really don't know why I'm going to church. I'm just doing it because man taught me. But we just read in Isaiah that God is not really keen on that behavior. And it's not like there's going to be a light bolt coming out of the sky killing us. But I think it's a question worth asking. Why do we go to church on Sunday? So sometimes we're critical of some things we do every day and weekly, like going to church and praying. Uh, not critical. We're not critical about that. We just do those. And sometimes we're critical about things that maybe an Anglican or Roman Catholic church does. Like, no, that's just like, that's just legalism. Maybe the answer is somewhere in the middle. Maybe liturgy can be something very beautiful, housekeeping of the temple through Christ's in God's big narrative. So when we worship, you guys know that my language of liturgy is worship. I love music. When we worship, I want to encourage you to see the path of the holy of holies next week as we do that. That we literally are walking from a village in, uh, somewhere in Israel towards the holy of holies and arrive there and realize that Christ has given the ultimate sacrifice. I would like to encourage you, if we do this communion in a little bit, to do it in memory of Christ, and not just do the gestures. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, so much for the freedom that we have here. 
the fact that we can all come together in a building, talk about you in freedom and relatively, uh, with relative ease, no persecution, and but it also makes it a little bit hard, I think, because we just take things for granted and we don't really know what it is, how, how it feels like to be persecuted like other churches in the world. And we may not know quite well what to do with our lives. So I want to ask, uh, ask you, Lord, to open up our hearts to talk to us individually because we just, we just learn that it's about relationship. Relationship with each other, relationship through Christ with you, Lord. So we, we love and adore that thought, but we don't always know how to do it. So as we take communion, Lord, we ask you that, that you would speak to us and teach us your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.